Uh, last week, if you were here with us, we started in the book of Acts, a long journey for us, um, exploring who are we? Like, what are we doing? It's a pretty important question, isn't it, as God's people? Um, and we read this morning in our text, uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the disciples, were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, well, I hope uh, none of you are alarmed by the fact that our senior pastor spends his time smelling paint as he walks through the building. Uh, it's, a fun, it's a fun hobby, Nathan. It's a fun, fun hobby. Um, <laughs> uh, my name is Reed Kappel. If you don't know me, I serve as the campus pastor here. It's a joy uh, to be with you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 2. Um, as Nathan mentioned, we started this series in the book of Acts last week, and we're continuing on. Uh, but as you're turning there, uh, let me ask this question. Um, maybe you've been in a situation like this where, you know, there's a task before you, some project you have to, to do, and, and at the beginning, you're convinced you have the capability and the competency to, to fulfill this task. But then as you enter it, as you begin, you very quickly realize, no, no, I don't. I, I am way in over my head. And, and this is like most days for me with most projects, but, but in particular, the one that comes to mind was when I attempted to remodel our bathroom for the first time about four years ago, uh, having like no real experience. You know, I just thought, I own tools. I can do this. I, I have YouTube. I can do this. And uh, very quickly, I learned that I can't do this. And uh, that was evident. I mean, the, like the moment I, I swung my hammer to like crack the, the hauntingly out-of-date tile, uh, I just realized like, this is, this, I've made a mistake. I've made a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake. And, and that became abundantly clear uh, the first day when I removed the subfloor, and as I was doing so, slipped and fell through the floor into the garage below. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I didn't go all the way through. I was able to catch myself, but, but we, we created a nice skylight in our garage, so uh, upping the resale value. But, uh, but seriously, I mean, like, like this guy, I think I have a picture. This, this guy, this guy thought he could remodel a bathroom. What, what was I thinking? That's... Uh, that's not what our bathroom looks like. But, um, but yeah, but like, I, I just was convinced that I could do this. And I was the guy, like, I was not handy growing up. I was the guy that if, like, you know, if, like, our faucet was leaking, like, let's just move. Let's just sell the house <laughs> and move. It'd be easier. But, uh, but I mean, I, quickly, once I got into the project, I mean, not a second went by where I wasn't telling myself both 
privately and out loud with words that you can't say on Disney movies, like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And it was very, very overwhelming to the point that my wife actually called some friends of mine who came over and helped me kind of complete it. But in the moment, I very much felt I cannot do this. It's beyond my capability. And, uh, and, and I share this story because in the early chapters of Acts, we see the disciples facing something very similar, that they are, they are asked to be a part, they are not asked, uh, would you mind? No, they are called to a mission by God, a mission that is not just beyond their, their ability, it's a mission beyond their imagination. It's something that throughout their calling, they realize this is something we cannot do. It is beyond us. And, and, and what they quickly realize is something that I think we as the church today need to recognize as well, and, and that is this, that the mission that God has called us to, the mission is beyond us, but the good news is that the Spirit is with us. The mission is beyond us, but the Spirit is with us. And this is kind of the idea I just want us to kind of unpack and look at uh, as we explore the first half of Acts chapter 2, that the mission is beyond us, but the Spirit is with us. But let me, let me pray uh, as we jump into God's Word. So let's, let's take a moment to pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit to ask, Lord, that you would bless the teaching of your Word. Lord, I, I, am, I am feeble and broken, and, and I know that I can only accomplish anything that is pleasing to you and ultimately fruitful um, by the power of your Spirit. And so, Lord, I ask that we would rely upon your Spirit, that you would teach us truth from your Word, that we might know you and live in accordance with your design. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So, the mission is beyond us, but the good news is that the Spirit is with us. That's kind of the big idea of Acts chapter 2. And, and I want to unpack this idea by just looking at three things. And that's this, that the, there's the, the empowering Spirit who emboldens our faith with a joyful inclusion. The empowering Spirit who emboldens our faith with a joyful inclusion. So first, the empowering Spirit. Now, one thing to make clear, when we, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, this is, this is interesting language, you know, I mean, it's, it's weird to talk about the Holy Spirit, even, even if you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, it sounds even stranger, uh, and so I hope you kind of see the, the uniqueness of what it, what it means to talk about who the Holy Spirit is, and the first thing I want to point out is we need to be clear, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, Three persons in one essence, which is a, a paradox, I, I'm sure, and, and it's beyond the scope of, of this sermon to kind of unpack, but we need to be clear, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is God, and yet, the Christian church, and particularly in the West in many ways, we kind of downplay the role of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. We, we kind of treat the Holy Spirit like this kind of middle child of the family, you know? It's just like kind of forgotten, you know, we go to the grocery store, come back, and we left the Holy Spirit at the grocery store, like we kind of downplay... You've all done that with your middle children, um, or maybe I'm the only one, but, but we do. We downplay the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives individually as well as in the life of the church. And so what I want us to see is what, is what is the significance that Luke, remember Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts, two volumes kind of together. What is it that Luke is trying to show us in the significance of the events at Pentecost? And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. And so what we see in the first two verses, this is when the day of Pentecost arrived. Pentecost was um, one of the uh, parts of the, the harvest festival that the Jewish people have celebrated for years and years, the second part of this festival, an annual festival, which is why so many people are in Jerusalem at this time. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, referring to the disciples, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now what Luke is doing here, he's, he's trying to show us something that's very significant. That in this event, what is taking place is not just something remarkable and miraculous, although it is that, but what we see is that God is declaring something significant in this event, that there is a new creation era taking place as the Holy Spirit indwells His people and empowers the church for the mission the church has been called to. That this is not just this kind of like just random right turn that God is making, but this has been a part of His plan from the very beginning. What Luke is doing is he's actually in some ways showing us these echoes of Genesis chapter 1. And when we turn to the opening verses of the book of the Bible, we see these words, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, what I think Luke is wanting his readers to grasp in, in pointing this out and making this connection is that, is that we need to see that the events of Pentecost are not something totally new and out of, the, uh, out of the ordinary, but they are a continuation of what God has been doing from the beginning, that God is instituting this new creation era as the church is sent forth on the mission that God has been a part of from the very beginning. That just as the Spirit was hovering over the waters of creation before God spoke all things into existence, that the, the same Spirit that was hovering over the waters of Jesus' baptism as God declared that this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, the same Spirit is now hovering like a wind over the disciples and indwelling the disciples at Pentecost, empowering them to speak new creation life into the entire world by proclaiming the mighty works of God. What's happening at Pentecost, what God is essentially saying in sending the Spirit and empowering the church for her mission is essentially this. God is saying, I have been working and building towards this day to empower you, to accomplish my mission in this world. And yes, it is a mission that is beyond you, but the good news is that the Spirit is with you, the one who is able to accomplish all that is needed in proclaiming the good news of Jesus throughout the entire world. And so again, this is not just something totally random. This is not this like Monty Python sketch, now for something completely different, but this is what God has been doing from the beginning in accomplishing his mission. And so, so then the question is, okay, we, we kind of got to have a little bit of a bigger picture here. Okay, we understand that. But what, what does the Spirit do? What is the work of the Spirit? How do we understand the significance of the Spirit at work in our lives, individually, and collectively as the church? Now, a lot can be said about this, but we're, we're going to limit our scope to what is, is for us here in Acts 2. But the beautiful thing as we continue on through Acts is that we will get, continue to explore the power and the work of the Spirit through His church. So let us look at the work of the Spirit and look at with me at verse 4. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the word tongues here, this is where there's some interesting confusion. Uh, but the word tongues here, you know, some people think, okay, is this, is this like some kind of angelic language that is indistinguishable? Uh, and there's a lot of debate about this. But I think in Acts 2, the word tongues here is referring to actual languages, human languages that are understandable. Because we see that in the context when you look at verses 7 and 8. Because, I mean, there, there can be some debate about when Paul talks about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians, that there may be some different meaning in that. But what we see in Acts chapter 2 
is that the gift of tongues here is, is the ability to speak languages in the world so that others might know and hear the mighty works of God, which is made very clear in verses 7 and 8. And they, referring to the people from all these different regions and cultures and countries, says, and they were amazed and astonished. Why? Because they said, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, I share this because we need to understand that the work of the Spirit, when it comes to the work of the Spirit and this event at Pentecost, we, we need to be careful that we don't elevate the form of the work of the Spirit over the function of the work of the Spirit. And what I mean by that is this, is that the focus is not on the gift of tongues itself, but rather the gift of the Spirit that equips the church to conquer and to go over barriers that stand in the way of the mission of God moving forward. The focus is not on the gift of tongues and how miraculous that is. The focus is not on a gift that brings attention to us, but rather the gift of the Spirit that enables the church to make much of God, not much of ourselves. So in other words, the major point of all of this in Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit, is not so that the church can be amazing and show off how powerful they are, but rather how powerful the one in whom they trust, how powerful the one who dwells within them is. The point of Pentecost is to show us that the mission that God has called us to truly is beyond us but that the Spirit is with us and empowers us and enables us to accomplish all that is needed in the mission that Jesus sent the church forth, as we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what this means, and and this this is really important that we grasp, that the same Spirit, the same Spirit that was hovering over the waters of creation and as, as we were preparing to hear God speak all of creation to existence, that same spirit was the spirit who empowered the prophets to proclaim God's word throughout time. It's the same spirit that, that empowered Jesus to accomplish his ministry on earth. It's the same spirit that, that indwelled the disciples to launch the greatest movement in human history. This same spirit is at work in the church today. It's not a different spirit. It's not that, well, the spirit that Jesus had was like varsity spirit, and we have like junior varsity spirit. There's no class. It's the same spirit at work from the beginning of creation, through the prophets, in the disciples as the church is launched, and in the church today. The same spirit empowers his church to accomplish his mission. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe this? Do we believe in this spirit? Do we believe that the spirit indwells and empowers the church to accomplish a mission that is beyond us? Do we trust in the Holy Spirit or do we rely on our own strength and ability and competency and charisma? And to answer those questions, I think we ha- there's one question that kind of, kind of puts all of these in one bucket. And that question is this, is how bold are your prayers? How bold are, your, how bold are my prayers? If we believe that the same spirit that was at work in bringing creation into existence is at work in and through the church today, do we pray with that kind of power in mind? Do we pray for the salvation of those in our lives who don't know Jesus? Do we pray for the reconciliation of of warring people groups, of divided cultures? Do Do we pray for the victims of injustice, that God would bring peace and shalom to this world? Do we pray that through the church and through our work that God would accomplish his efforts and bringing about love and blessing to the world? Do we pray 
for the return of Christ. And I will, I will very quickly admit that I don't pray for these things often enough. And if I do, I don't pray with boldness. Because if I'm honest, deep down, I, 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 I'm hopeless about those things. And I may pray about them because I, like, I feel like I should, because I'm a pastor. But, but do I believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in and through His church to accomplish these purposes? At the end of the day, the reason I don't pray these kind of bold prayers is because I think ultimately the work of the church falls on me. It falls on us as people that don't really have the power of the Spirit. So the question we should ask ourselves is, do we pray bold prayers? And that's a good barometer for determining how much I truly believe and trust in the power of the Spirit that is at work in us and through us. Do our prayers reflect the fact that the mission is beyond us, but that the Spirit is with us? And do we pray knowing that the Spirit is at work in emboldening our faith? That's kind of the second thing that that I believe Luke is showing us through this event at Pentecost, that the Spirit, the empowering Spirit, emboldens our faith. And we see this in what Luke records in verses 7 through 11, as we, as we, this, this mentioning of the myriad of, of, of nations and cultures and languages, all these different people groups in their respective languages, they're able to understand the words of the disciples, which Luke writes in verse 11. They say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now think about this just for a second. These disciples, these disciples are boldly proclaiming the mighty works of God, specifically the work of God in bringing redemption and forgiveness through Jesus the Messiah, And they're proclaiming this truth, these mighty works, to the very people, many of them, the crowd that they're speaking to, many of them who were complicit in declaring that Jesus should be crucified. So they're not just kind of talking to their friends and their coworkers. They're speaking to a hostile crowd that is not ready or interested in hearing that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. These disciples who are boldly proclaiming these words are the same disciples just weeks earlier who were very quick to deny Jesus, to reject him, and go in hiding because of their fear of being associated with him. And so the question should be, what changed? What enabled these men to boldly proclaim the mighty works of God to a hostile crowd? Their faith was emboldened, yes, because of their witness of the resurrection, but also because they have now been empowered by the Spirit who gives them the ability to accomplish the mission that is truly beyond them. But notice, notice that the disciples, as they're empowered by the Spirit, they don't use this opportunity and this this power and this ability for their own gain. They they don't use it to create this kind of posture of superiority where they kind of throw their, their spiritual weight around, so to speak, as they make much of themselves, but rather the Spirit equips them and enables them to make much of the one who rescued them, namely Jesus of Nazareth. And they do so boldly and publicly. And so here's the question for us as the church, as we consider what it means to be empowered by the Spirit who emboldens our faith. How public is our faith? How public is our convictions about who Jesus is, about what he has accomplished in the world and what he continues to accomplish in the world? How public is our faith? And and maybe, let me frame it this way. If I were to ask your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates what they knew about your faith convictions and beliefs, what would they tell me? 
What would my neighbors tell you if you asked them the same question? Do I live my life in such a public way that it is evident what my life is being lived for? Does your faith impact the decisions you make at work? Does it impact your relationships and how you make business transactions? Does Does it influence and shape your parenting styles? Does your faith in who Jesus is, does does it kind of give a a framework for how you engage in conversations about politics, about the economy, about culture? Does it influence the way you post things on social media? And does it influence the way you talk about your challenges, your difficulties, your pains, your sorrows, and your joys in life? Now let me say this, because I'm not trying to guilt you. And I'm not trying to manipulate you like, I guess I need to start talking about my faith more. But I believe a public faith, it, we, we make it so much more complicated than what I think it actually is. We tend to think, okay, to, to, to live a public faith, it means I have to hijack conversations and awkwardly force Jesus into this situation. And that, that's not the case. It's not about hijacking conversation. It's not about being forceful. And it's not about being timid. It's about letting your faith that is naturally a part of your life, a normal part of your life, come out in conversation as if it were a natural, normal part of your life. So, I mean, like, think about it this way. Like, I, I, don't, I don't ask myself, like, gosh, how am I going to talk about my family with my neighbors? Like, that's not difficult because my, my family, my children are part of my life naturally. Like, I'm not thinking, how am I going to work hamburgers into this conversation? Because I love hamburgers. If you've not accepted hamburgers into your life, I want to talk to you after the service, okay? No, but in all seriousness, we talk naturally about the things that are natural in our life. But we so often short-circuit our attempts to have natural conversations with people by either hiding who we are or asserting who we are. And, and if, you're, if you're not a Christian... You've probably experienced that. You probably have Christians in your life who have either been so overbearing to the point of being offensive that that's just not really pleasant, or Christians who have been so private that they're inauthentic about who they are. In both of those extremes, those Christians don't care about you. And so when we think about, as followers of Jesus, our posture in public with our faith, it's not about how can I force this conversation in, but it's like, the question really shouldn't be, how, how can I be more public with my faith? The question is actually this. Is my faith a natural, normal part of my life? Is it a natural, normal part of my routine? Do I live with, a, with the lenses of the scriptures and the truth of who Jesus is as I look at my work, at my relationships, at my play, at my decisions, at my money, at my sexuality, at everything? It's not about asking, how can I be public with my faith? But rather, how normal is my faith? The empowering spirit emboldens our faith. But what we see as as Acts 2 continues is that the spirit empowers us, emboldens us with a joyful inclusion. A joyful inclusion. Now what I mean by that is this. The disciples were eager to proclaim the mighty works of God to anyone who would listen. And they were bold and eager to to share this truth with all peoples from all cultures, from all nations, from all different languages, to whoever was in their midst. Again, notice the the list of these different nations and cultures. I mean, mean, uh, Luke is referring to the, the, the Parthians, the Medes, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, citizens of Rome, Libya, Egypt, like very diverse cultures and people groups and languages. And this list 
This list that is, is referenced demonstrates that God is at work to the disciples in, in beginning this worldwide mission that Jesus called them to back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's starting to begin. This mission that seemed completely beyond their ability and imagination is starting to take root. The sparks are beginning. But what this list also demonstrates, this list of nations and cultures, it also demonstrates that God explicitly chose to spread the gospel of Jesus, not just through one homogenous culture, but through a plethora, through a diversity of culture. From the beginning of the church, what do we see? We don't see one culture that everyone else must kind of align to. But rather, from the beginning, God says, the way my gospel will spread is through the diversity and the beauty of cultures. And because of this, what this means is that there isn't one culture that is to be championed or preserved over others. There's not one culture that has precedence over other cultures in the world. And so what this means is that if, 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 a, if a woman from Nepal comes to faith in Christ, she is not expected to align herself with a Western white sub-Christian culture, but rather she is to remain in her culture and redeem the parts of her culture that do not reflect Jesus and celebrate and preserve and magnify the parts that do, that, that promote peace, that promote human flourishing. But we so often tend to think that, yes, we believe in Jesus, but, but there's a certain way of believing Jesus. There's a certain culture, there's a certain style, a dress, a language, a look that Christians must have. And let me tell you that that way of thinking is completely contrary and antithetical to the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ that was launched into the world through the beauty of diversity and culture. There is no ground for a Christian to say who is filled with the Spirit, my, my version of Christianity, my cultural version of Christianity is better than your version. Because the church's origin is rooted in a cultural and linguistic diversity that enabled it to spread to the whole world. That's the beauty of how the church spread, not through one homogenous culture, but through the diversity of culture. A Spirit-filled follower of Jesus sees the beauty of diverse cultures as a way that the Spirit will work and will continue to work in spreading the message of the gospel to all people in all places through all time. And so we should ask ourselves, have, have we come to adopt a certain way of doing church that, that and I'm not saying like it's bad to have a culture, but do we see our culture as being better than others? Our way of doing church is better than others. Or are we willing to look at the beauty of diversity and say, this is how God is at work in accomplishing the mission that Jesus called the disciples to in Acts 1.8? Did you know that the Christian church today is the, is the most diverse religion of all the major world religions? And, and, and in fact, it's probably one of the most diverse institutions in the entire world. And it's because Jesus is not owned by one people group, by one culture, by one language, Jesus is the king of all peoples, which is also why Christianity, this is so, this is so unique, of all the major world religions, the, if you think of Islam, it is largely concentrated near its place of origin, the Middle East. When you think of Buddhism and Hinduism, it's largely concentrated in its place of origin, Asia. Where is the Christian church largely concentrated? It's all over the place. It's not largely concentrated at its place of origin. Why? Because it was never intended to stay within one people group, one culture. It was intended from the beginning to spread 
In fact, you see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 11 and 12. As God said to Abraham, you will be a blessing to all nations. We see the church thriving. We see the church of Jesus Christ thriving, not just in places near its origin, but in places like China. I mean, when we think, when we think about our church, Christ Community, we partner with, with multiple global partners, and it's beautiful to hear these stories of the way in which the church is growing in places like China, in Rwanda, in Kenya, in Germany, in Iran. The church is growing and thriving. Why? Because the empowering spirit emboldens our faith with a joyful inclusion for all peoples. And if this is true, if this is true, then we as a church must ask ourselves this question. How wide is our love? How wide is our love? Do we have a perspective and an understanding, a a functional understanding that the church of Jesus Christ has been sent out into the whole world to be a people of love and truth for all peoples? Or is our Christianity simply only capable of having categories for people that are just like me? Do we believe in a gospel that reaches across lines to rescue people, that it reaches across cultural lines, that it reaches across city lines, that it reaches across racial lines, that it reaches across socioeconomic lines? Do we believe in a gospel that is wider than what we may believe it to be? Do we believe in a spirit that empowers the church and emboldens us as the church to be a people to proclaim the mighty works of God for all people, that they might know the Lord Jesus? Do we believe in a Jesus who both values and challenges every culture? Do we believe in a church where people, where people who are strangers, where people who shouldn't be together are able, through Jesus, to call each other brother and sister? Do we believe in a church like that? I wanna wanna tell you a story about Charlie. Charlie, Charlie is a member of our church. He attends our downtown campus. And Charlie, I mean, he's gone through membership, he's been a part of the church, and Charlie has lived most of his life uh, on the streets. And even to this day, he kind of wanders in and out of homelessness. And Char- maybe you've met Charlie. I mean, he comes to every congregational meeting. He's a phenomenal image bearer of God. And recently, at, at, a, at a service at our downtown campus, Charlie, um, in the middle of the service, uh, was experiencing some pretty intense pain, and to the point that the service had to be interrupted and stopped. And so they, they, they stopped, they were kind of praying for him, some congregants were caring for him, they had to call an ambulance and send him to the hospital. And he was okay, he got the treatment he needed, he was fine, but Charlie wrote a letter and he wanted to share it with, with our whole staff. And in, in, in the letter he says this, and I'm not going to cry, okay? I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just declaring this. <laughs> Gabe and Tyler, they're, they're our pastors at the downtown campus. Gabe and Tyler went beyond the call of duty with concern for what was going on with me at that time. Gabe came over to me and was very kind. I also had more than enough physical assistance from church members. The level of love and grace and mercy I was shown at that time was, I hope, more than enough to make God smile as he got a chance to watch his kids take care of their brother. I need to say that if lost, broken, hurting people would just walk in these doors, this entire city would find the face of God. That's good, isn't it? That's really good. I mean, seriously, that is the picture. That is the picture of what the church ought to be, what the church is and what the church can be, what the church was intended to be. And one thing, to be clear, uh, like when when Charlie went to the hospital, um, one of the members of the church jumped in the ambulance to go with him. He was a surgeon. 
Where on earth does that happen? Where a surgeon is caring for a homeless person and not in a, I'm providing needs for this person, but it's because, no, this is a family member of mine. Where on earth does a surgeon and a homeless man have the kind of bond relationally that allows them to treat each other like brothers? This is a small taste of what I hope and long for the church to be. Yes, us as Christ community, the Olathe campus, and across all of our campuses, but for the church globally. So friends, when we talk about this whole, this whole church thing, it's not about Sunday morning. It's not about coming together and singing amazing songs and hearing mediocre sermons, you know. It's, it's about coming together as the people of God, empowered by the Spirit, to accomplish the mission that extends beyond these walls. Absolutely, it is beautiful to gather with the people of God. But we are called on mission to be the church, yes, gathered, but also the church scattered in the places God has called us to. That we've been called to be sent into our relationships, into our places of work, our schools, our play, to be empowered by the Spirit who emboldens our faith with a joyful inclusion. And He has done this, and He is sending us into every sphere of our lives, every day, to proclaim the mighty works of God and to love our neighbors through all the places and all the means and all the ways in which God has placed us in our lives. We have been sent We've been sent on a mission, yes, that is beyond us. But thanks be to God that the Spirit is with us and will accomplish all that He desires. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you asking that you would empower your church. Holy Spirit, we, we are dependent upon your ability to grow this church. Lord, Lord any idiot can grow a church in Olathe. But we, we want to see you change lives. We don't want just to gather a crowd, but we want to see lives transformed who are brought into life with Christ and who are sent on mission to be your ambassadors, your, your agents of change and grace and justice and compassion in this world. Lord, would you awaken us to the mission you've called us to? And as we grow as a church, Lord, would you help us to not lose sight of this mission? that we long to be a church for those who are beyond these walls. And may you, Lord, give us a heart and a, and a vision of what it means to be a church for all peoples. Would you do this, Lord, for your glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Go in peace.